began chapter 12, we began one of the sad sections of uh, Scripture in regard to, to Jesus and His relationship with the nation of Israel. And that's because chapter 12 is the, the point in which the nation rejects their Savior. Up until chapter 12, Jesus has been teaching plainly. We've read through His teachings. We've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, probably the, the greatest moral teaching ever given that speaks of the, the character of the man of God and the character of the kingdom. And he, he showed his power as he did a, a variety of, of healings, works, wonders, raising the dead, curing the leper, cleansing the leper, and making the blind to see, the lame to walk. So many things that he was, that he was doing. And, and uh, you know, really coming to a place of, of high popularity among the people. And then he runs into these guys. He runs into the, the religious folk. He runs into the Pharisees. Now they've been around and, and causing grief all along. But in chapter 12, you remember they, they try to lay a trap for Jesus. And they try to say, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They want to know where the authority that Jesus has comes from. And why he thinks he can do the things he does. And so Jesus lays out his argument. Ultimately, the argument that he had for why he was the one who could tell them what to do on the Sabbath is because he's the one who gave them the Sabbath law. He said that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the only one who can tell you the proper right interpretation of how to conduct the Sabbath because I was the one who gave it to you. Now, the Pharisees are kind of blown away by his argument, so they they kind of back up a little bit. And Jesus walks to this man who they were trying to use with a withered hand, and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, lifted out his hand to the Lord, and, and he touched it and healed it. And the Lord said to all those who could hear, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That is... It's not about these regulations that, that men can put on one another. That those regulations do not give you a relationship with God. You can never do something good enough or look good enough or look nice enough on the outside to have or, or earn for yourself a relationship with God. Relationship with God comes on the basis of us coming to Him as unworthy And laying down at His feet our burdens. Asking for His forgiveness and mercy. And He bestows that upon us. Covers us with the righteousness of His Son. And welcomes us into His family. That's the only way. There's no, I'm a good enough person. I'll do enough good things. Doesn't happen. And that was Jesus. The argument that people had with the Lord is that argument. I'm a good person. Anybody ever hear that today? I'm a good person. I do good things. Heaven would be, would be happy to have a guy like me because I'm a good person. There's one problem. There are none. Well, I mean, in comparison to you and I, we can see people that are good, but they're good sinners. They're still broken. They still have a disease. They still have a damaged heart that needs to be cured. It can only be cured by the touch of the master's hand as Jesus reaches down and works in her life. It's the only way. That was the grief. Immediately when that occurs, we see in, in verse 14 of, of chapter 12, immediately says the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Apparently that's okay on the Sabbath day. But healing is not okay. What do we see in the Pharisees by their actions is what Jesus is going to describe to us in a little while. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the stuff that goes on inside a man, sooner or later it comes out. You can paint it up, you can make it look pretty on the outside, you can whitewash it, but it doesn't change the reality that inside there's a bunch of broken garbage. That has to be dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, then you've just got a, a person filled with pride at how pretty or how good they can look on the outside. But that doesn't earn a relationship with God. All that does is make us look good to each other. It doesn't earn 
a relationship with God. And before we run too far the other way, don't forget that Jesus said, the things that the Pharisees have done, you should have done, but not left these other things undone. He's not saying not to be moral, not to be good, not to be forthright, not to, not to try to, to, to bring forth those things. He's saying that it's got to start from the inside first, not on the outside. Because to God, what's on the inside is what matters. What's going on inside of us? What's going on inside of our heart? Well, in verse 15, it goes on and says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him. I love this phrase. And he healed them all. Now, before you think that there was ever a time like this, any other time in history, you need to think about that phrase. He healed them all. During this three years of ministry that Jesus had, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that here we are 2,000 years later on a Sunday gathered together to talk about Jesus Christ who never left the country in which he was born, which is not a great, powerful, mighty country. He was never a king. He was never a world leader. He just ministered to the people for three years. Three We study Rome, and we study Caesar, and we study the kings of England, and we study our presidents. All of them had a greater resume than three years of ministry, but none of them had a greater impact. Because God in the flesh came, and for those three years, he made it perfectly clear who he was. And he healed them all. Don't you wish that it would work like that today? I know I do. I wish it was like that today, but I also know that God is sovereign and incredibly beyond my wisdom. He understands why things need to be the way they are. I trust him. I trust him implicitly. And Jesus says the Pharisees are, are plotting to kill him, to destroy him. He doesn't get in a fight with them. He, as God Almighty, doesn't demand his rights. And what's wrong with you guys? And why can't you see? He just leaves. He just leaves. That's what he does today. He'll present himself as king for your life. And he will ask for that affection that's due him in your life. But if we, like Israel before, just add him into a space, or we give him a slot, or we say, this day's your day, or we open up that little space and we say, that's it, he's not going to fight us for position in our life. He'll just go away. Oh, he won't leave you. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But you're not experiencing everything that God has for your life because you're not committed. You're not submitted. You're just playing that part for that moment. And Jesus, he never gave himself to them. He just went away. He went back to the people. He went back to the people that they said were worthless. He went back to the people that they said, there's nothing good about these guys. Let Jesus have them. What do we care? That's all the poor. It's all the sinners. It's all the dirty people. That's who Jesus was with. I try to remind myself of that frequently. If I start to look at someone else in the world as though somehow I have exalted myself above their station in life. Because I don't do that. I don't do that. Jesus was with those who struggled. But he healed them all. A relationship with Jesus Christ is key to experiencing the healing of God in your life. A relationship. A daily relationship with God. Here Jesus is. He he withdraws. He doesn't fight with them. It says in verse 16, but he warned the people that he was helping. He warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 42, this next section comes from that prophecy from Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah. It says, behold my servant, by the word, by the word, by the way, that word, my servant in the Hebrew can also be my son. 
He says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. It kind of sounds like what the father said to the son at, at the baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. First time. (coughs) First time in the book of Matthew, we begin to look toward the Gentiles. Why? Because the nation of Israel is rejecting him. The leadership of the nation of Israel is turning away. Now, Matthew says, remember what Isaiah the prophet said? Isaiah the prophet, this is what he said, it, it's, it's the son of God, his servant whom he's chosen, it's, it's the most beloved of the Lord, and here he is with the spirit of God poured upon him. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 tell us that though Jesus Christ was God, he set aside the ability to do it all himself, and he took on the spirit of God and the call of God and performed or did every work he did by what the father gave him to do. Over and over and over we hear Jesus say that. I only say the things my Father's given me to say. I only do those things my Father has given me to do. He provides that perfect example of what a man totally committed and submitted to God looks like. It's Jesus Christ. I used to say, well, of course, Jesus could do it. He was God. But then I read Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, and I discovered that it was the emptying of himself and the receiving of power from the Father and from the Holy Spirit that enabled him to do his ministry. So he gives us that example. He says, look, this is how it looks. Look, this is how it's done. This is the one for whom the Father is well pleased. And he, he's going to declare justice to the Gentiles. Until this time, Gentiles were just fuel for the fires of hell. There's no big outreach for them. But here the Lord is saying, I'm going to declare justice to the Gentiles. But then he describes the character of Christ. Look at verse verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out. You're not going to see Jesus standing on the corner having a big argument with somebody over theology. You're not going to see Jesus having a, a big fight with somebody that comes and knocks on the door. I'm not saying he won't tell them the truth. He'll tell them the truth. But that's it. Here's the truth. You have it now. You do with it what you're going to do with it. Just like the Pharisees here starting to fight there in the synagogue, wanting to destroy him, Jesus just withdraws. He doesn't start a fight with him. He doesn't raise a ruckus. He doesn't demand his rights. You ever been there? You ever thought, by golly, if there's ever a time for me to demand my rights, it's right now. Well, I felt that way a couple times. Anybody got internet service at their house? For like more than an hour before it goes out? Or stops working? Or goes off every night when you're trying to do something on it? If I don't need it, it works perfect. When I need it, it doesn't work at all. When I call them, they all tell me the same thing. Oh, yeah, look there. There's a weak signal. (laughs) I've been telling you that for six months. Huh. (laughs) We have these things that happen in our life that that raise up ire within us, and then we want to demand what's right. By golly, I deserve what's right. Listen, I wasn't Jesus. It wasn't him. He was God standing before Pharisees who he had created. That he knew every thought they ever thunk, every sin that they ever considered in their mind, all the dirty laundry that they had while they're pointing their fingers at him and telling him, oh my gosh, you are a a sinner. Obviously you have to be because you don't keep the Sabbath the way we say you should keep the Sabbath. If there's ever a time for him to call a guy out and just hammer him and say, hey, it was right then, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because that's not the way God works. He offers us the truth. Here's the truth. We can slap it away and do what we want. We have that right to make that choice. Scripture says, not only will he not quarrel or cry out. That word cry out, by the way, is bark. Like a dog just yapping. It says he won't do that. 
He won't do that. I, I run across some guys in California. I don't think they're in Idaho. Um, but they used to get a bullhorn. And they'd stand on the corner. And as cars drove by, they would shout at every car with a bullhorn how they're a sinner and they need Jesus. Well, both of those things are true. Probably. Well, yeah, they're, we're all sinners. But their method made people want to run to the other side of the street when they were walking down the road. And here it says Jesus didn't bark. Jesus didn't grab the bullhorn and scream at people in the car. He presented them the truth. They got the right to do with the truth what they want to do with it. It goes on to say, Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed, it speaks of that reed that is just worn down because of life, because of traffic. If you're walking through the reeds, the more times you walk through the reeds, the more bruised reeds. And that just falls over. It's, it's bruised in a spot. And it's soft. And it will no longer stand up. Do you know anybody like that? Just bruised by life. Just can't seem to stand up anymore. Just, but the Bible says that Jesus, he's not, he won't even break that. He won't even break it. That's how gentle he is. It says a smoking flax he will not quench. That's like the wick of your, of your candle. You know when you blow it out, that, that black crumbly stuff on it? How hard is that to just pull off? That's easy. It's just crumbly. It's all burnt out. But the scripture says Jesus won't, won't even do that. That's how gentle he is. That's how gentle he is. What, what, what's, so who cares? What's the big deal? Why are, you, why are you talking about this? Because the scripture says, if you say that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to walk as he walked. That means a bruised reed. We don't break that person that's just run down in life. Even though it's the 50th time they've been bruised. And you think, my goodness, how many times do we have to? I think Jesus said 70 times 7. Right? 490. Remember that? When Peter came to Jesus, he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother for this sin? Seven times? Wow, Peter, you're going out there on a limb, ain't you? The Lord says, no, 70 times 7. And for a long time, I used to look at that and say, well, that's kind of interesting. Why would the Lord say that? 490. Where does that come up? 490, 70 times 7. You know, you do a study in the Old Testament, you know what you discover? Every seven years, there was supposed to be a sabbatical year. That meant that the, the land lay fallow. That means you didn't put nothing in it. Which also meant you didn't get no crops. But God promised them something. He said, every sixth year, I'll give you double. And then you let the land rest the seventh year. We discover the greediness of man because for 70 years, they never once kept the Sabbath for the land. Never one time. 490 years passed. 70 opportunities for them to have kept the Sabbath for the land, and they never did it once. So when the nation of Israel goes into captivity in the Babylon, after 490 years of not keeping the, the promise of God and God forgiving them for 490 years, they went into captivity for 70. And the Lord said, I will give the land the Sabbath it deserved. For 70 years, you won't be in it. And he sent them to Babylon. So when Jesus says, I say 70 times 7, that's 490 years God forgave. Over and over and over again. What does that mean? Well, when we look at this and we see the gentleness of Christ, and we, we run into the people in life who, who find a way, somehow they're always bruised or they're always hurting. And we want to run out of patience for them. Just keep in mind, God doesn't run out of patience for you. And he never tells me it's okay. It's okay, Jackie, for you to lose patience right now. Every once in a while, it's okay. No, we, that's what we tell each other. 
if I want to look like Jesus, I want to walk like he walked. I don't want to break the bruised reed. I don't want to quench the smoking flax. I want to try to have that attitude. Do I do it all the time? Of course not. Why? Because I'm a busted vessel. But it doesn't mean that I don't hold that up and say, here's my goal. This is my direction. This is where I'm going. I got lots of rights. We, we live in the nation of the people's rights, don't we? We live in the land of the people's rights. Interesting. Because that's the name Laodicea. Oh, the people's rights. Clamoring for our rights. Also happens to be a church Jesus wasn't very happy with. Because they were clamoring for their rights. Rather than loving the one who gave them all to them. And that's our goal. That's what we want to do. It says here at the end of verse 20. Till he sends forth justice to victory in his name. The Gentiles will trust. So we see something's changing. Something's shifting. And it begins in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed blind and mute and he healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw and the multitudes were amazed and they said could this be the one the son of david could this be the messiah now the people who are gathering around jesus look to the ones who are supposed to point to jesus and say he is and they say to them couldn't this be the son of david I mean, look at what he does. And the, their entire life long, they'd never seen a healer. I would venture to say in our entire life, we've never seen someone who could do these things. Or maybe we've heard of healing services and, and people being healed. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But Jesus one day is walking into Jerusalem as a funeral procession is walking out. And he just reaches up and touches a casket and the guy comes to life. And he gets up out of the casket. And in an instant, he turns mourning to, to joy. And a, and a mother is given back her, her child whom she had lost. And, and all that because Jesus was here. There's no time like that, ever. And here the people are looking. They say, can't this be the one? Is Jesus the Messiah? That's what they're asking. Now when the Pharisees heard this, they said... This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So get it in your mind. The people are saying, is this the Messiah? The Holy Spirit has been working and and drawing and convicting. And they see him and they recognize there's something special. Is this the Messiah? And the Pharisees say, no, it's not the Messiah. It's the devil. That's what they said. It's not the Messiah. It's Beelzebub. Beelzebub. He was so such a hated deity of the Philistines that the children of Israel took that name of their deity and he, and they made it to represent Satan, Lord of the Flies. That's how he does it. He's really the devil. He's not the Messiah. He's the devil. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them in verse twenty-five: Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The first thing he does is he comes at him with logic. What are you talking about? I'm the devil. If I'm the devil, why would I be healing and doing all these things? Why would I be doing any of this stuff? I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be here. He says, logically, you can see that I'm not. If I cast out demons, then he goes on. If I cast them out by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. At this particular time in the nation of Israel, (coughs) there was an excitement about demonology and and people doing exorcisms and people trying to figure out how to do it. And, And as they were doing it, they all would use or divine the the power of almighty to cast out the demons so the lord says listen if i do it by beelzebub who do your guys do it by oh so they cast them out by the lord but i'm using the devil to cast them out just arbitrary decision and then he says well then listen they'll be your judges those guys they'll be the judges to the pharisees 
who are seeing the hand of Almighty God work on earth and saying that that is the hand of the devil. That's so blind. So blind. A time like no other time. They couldn't recognize. They would not recognize. Why? Because he wouldn't follow their rule book. Because he wouldn't follow the rules. 101 rules on how to be a righteous person. Rule number one. Never shuck grain with your hands. If you do, you're not a righteous person. you got to go. But that's, that's exactly what brings them to this point. So the Lord goes on and says in verse 29. He says, now how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now when you look at this scripture, here's what I want you to see. The strong man, that's the devil. And his house, that's the world. For he is the prince and the power of this age. He is, this is his kingdom taken from man. And here is God himself come in the flesh to plunder his goods. How is he going to do it? He's going to disarm Satan. He's going to disarm him. How is he going to disarm him? He's going to disarm him at the cross. At the cross. He says, therefore, anyone, (coughs) excuse me, therefore, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. He's speaking of that coming kingdom. His death on the cross is going to disarm Satan. And then the Lord is going to be able to plunder his house, the world, because souls will be able to be saved. They'll be able to have a relationship with God. They'll be able to enter into eternity with him. How's he going to do it? First, he's going to bind up the strong man. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to work against Satan. He's going to tie this all together as we come to the end of the chapter. We'll see. But as, he, as we look at this, he's saying, so, here's the line. You are with me or against me. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Zero middle ground. None. You are with me or against me. Period. With me or against me. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man... It will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus brings that teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Context of this chapter tells us that what he's talking about is what the Pharisees just did. What the Pharisees just did, seeing the hand of God moving among them and attributing the hand of God to Satan. It's the rejection of Jesus Christ. The rejection of the wooing of the Spirit to these people. I remember when I was 12 years old, I couldn't find my baseball glove. And I'm running around the house and I'm getting upset. (coughs) Had a bad temper in those days. And and all of a sudden, I I start yelling at God because I can't find my, my baseball mitt. And I said some mean things to God. I don't know. I'm sure nobody here has ever done that. But I said some mean things to God. 12 year old. I was mad. Can't find my glove. I mean, that is the end of the world, right? I can't find my glove. I'm late for the game. And so I'm mad. And the last thing I say is I'm shaking my fist at God because, you know, he could make my glove appear. But he wouldn't do it. As I'm shaking my fist at God, I hear my mom say, God hears you. Now, it might sound stupid, but from the time I was 12 till probably the time I was 32 or 3, I had a hard time with that. That whole time, I thought, God can never forgive me for what I said. I know, I knew the Lord. I'm not saying I was unsaved, I didn't know who God was, and I was, no, man, I knew Him. I was mad. And I way down the line, 30 years old, and, and someone would do a, an altar call, and I think, oh, I need to go up an altar call, but I don't, I don't know. Struggling with that concept that somehow I had done the unforgivable thing. If you want 
forgiveness, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you want forgiveness, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you've said, what you've done, how mad you've been. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the final and ultimate rejection of Christ. Period. Sir. <laughs> I know, and you know, Jesus said 70 times 7, he'll forgive you. So for, if for 490 years, if you live that long, if for 490 years you can commit the same sin, you're in big trouble. But because Jesus said that, he'll forgive it. No matter what. Even though we continue to make the same mistakes. Even though we do the same dumb things. Even though, even though over and over and over again, same sin. God, we cannot out-sin God's grace. The key is, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit rejection of christ they were rejecting him he was there with arms out even for the pharisees and they push the arms away and say you're the devil that's blasphemy of the holy spirit that's it and so that's what he lays out and he says now here's how you're going to be able to tell he says listen either make a tree good and its fruit good or else the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit jesus says let's compare here am i healing the leper healing the blind healing the lame casting out demons raising the dead to life again judge the fruit here are the pharisees they're hiding in a room talking about how they can kill me they're spreading lies. They're spreading deceit. He said, listen, either the tree is good or it's bad. A bad tree will never have good fruit. A good tree will not have bad fruit. Look at the fruit. See what's going on. This is what Jesus is laying out for them. A fruit, the tree is known by its fruit. And then he says in verse 34, brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? He's letting them know in case you missed it. The bad trees, the Pharisees. He says, you guys are like snakes, like poisonous snakes. Biting people, killing people for your own good. Brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Comes out of the heart flows into the bucket of the mouth. Whatever's in the heart comes out the mouth. I know a lot of guys that throughout their life have, have struggled. I mean, I mean, there was a time in my life where <clears throat> cursing come out my mouth all the time. That's not who I am anymore. It's not in my heart. It's not there. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What were the Pharisees trying to do? Kill him. Kill him. He stands against the number one bestseller, 101 rules of how to be righteous. And since he stands against the 101 rules of how to be righteous, kill him. Because that's what righteous men do, right? That's where they were. That's what's going on. Jesus is saying this is what's in their heart. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, for every idle word men speak, they will give account on the day of judgment. Excuse me? For every idle word a man speaks. That's why I was so freaked out. From the time I was 12 years old. Every idle word I ever spoke. Every thought I ever had. God knows them all. All of them. There's not, you can't hide any of them from him. He knows them all. He says, for by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. The only words you need to, to worry about in that is Romans 10, 9 and 10. What's the word that justifies? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. By your words you will be justified. Because you can't say it if it's not in your heart. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, mouth speaks. No one can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. Scripture lays it out. And no one by the Spirit can call him accursed. Simple. By your words you will be condemned. You ever heard someone say, I'll be damned? Probably. (laughs) By your words, you'll be condemned. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I I don't have to get deep into anything. I, I can just tell by your words. Because your words speak to the condition of your heart. If we're having problems with our words, something's wrong with our heart. It's indicative that there's an issue within us in our heart, not with our mouth. You can make little Johnny chew on soap all you want until his heart changes. The words don't change. Well, it might change where you can hear them. But they're not changing. Well, I did a great... I got them. Just don't use Don. Don's bad. Don't wash out mouths with Don. One night, my wife did that to me. <laughs> Not entirely true. What she did is she was washing the headboard. And it wasn't with Don, thankfully. I'll tell you why that's important. She used whatever. She buys cheap, so some kind of lemon thing. And she put it in the water. She, anyway, she washed the headboard. She left the water on the headboard. And I go to bed, and I always set a glass of water on the headboard to get a drink. Okay, so in the middle of the night, I get thirsty. You can see it coming, can't you? So there's this big, soapy, sudsy, bubbly water sitting there. Now, of course, at night, when the lights go out, I can't see it. And, and uh, so I reach up, and I feel this glass. It's cool. Oh, that's going to taste so good. And I'm pretty thirsty. You know, sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you're pretty thirsty. So I threw my head back. (laughs) Then all I could do was scream. (coughs) Kathy wakes up and she's like, what did you do? What did you do? You're poisoning me. I drank dishwater. So she goes, oh my gosh. Kathy's hilarious because she'll sometimes she panics about that stuff. So she runs to the phone and picks it up and calls poison control. <laughs> now, I can't stop her yet because I'm still choking. Because <coughs> I got soapy water in my mouth. Oh, my gosh. And so I hear her to poison control. But before I can say, babe, just, just hang up the phone. She goes, I need, I need help. I need to know my husband just drank dish soap. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm thinking, does, that guy, does it show our address when you make that call? <laughs> I don't want to know. That's a, that's a guy's first thought all the time. Embarrassment. So, <clears throat> and uh, shockingly, the person on the other end of the phone is, is like all panicked. Oh, was it Don? No. Well, he'll be fine. So that's what I say. I don't know what it is about Don. But don't use that. For cleaning out a mouth. Better to use the Spirit of God and the heart of man to clean out a mouth. Even for our kids. Even for our friends that struggle with it. And we can harp on them. And you can actually make someone change the outside. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? They changed the outside and made it look good. You have reformation without relationship. Relationship is what makes it all better. It's what makes it all good. And that's what Jesus is laying out for him. It says in verse 38, Then some of the Pharisees, or some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign. And these guys, they just called him the devil. What do you mean you want to see a sign? So Jesus responds, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it. Now, how many signs has he done so far? Like no other time in in history, ever before or after. But they want to see something else. They want him to perform, is what they want. (coughs) But ultimately, he says, 
No sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, there's a couple of issues we got to take right here. One, this means Jesus believed Jonah's story. He didn't say like that crazy guy Jonah who thought he was in the belly of a fish. He calls him a prophet. The only sign will be the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then Jesus reiterates the story of Jonah and says it's true. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so in the same manner, as equally true as that is, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is what Jesus says to them. The resurrection will be the final sign. That's it. After that time, no more signs. Often people ask me, how come it's not like it was back then? Or we don't see the same kind of things happening today. Even as it occurred in the, in the book of Acts. Because the writer of Hebrews says, in times past, the Lord spoke to us through his prophets. And he did all these incredible miracles and he did all these things. But in these last days, he has finished what he has to say. He has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus told the story of the the rich man and Lazarus going into hell, and, and the rich man saying to Abraham, send Lazarus back to talk to my brother. Send Lazarus back. I didn't know this place was real. Send him back to talk to my brother. Oh, Lazarus, he's in Abraham's bosom. That was the place for the righteous dead until the cross. Until the cross, the righteous dead were in a place called paradise. And the unrighteous dead were awaiting judgment and still are awaiting judgment of the, of the final day, the great white throne. So as they're there in that place, the rich man says, send them back. And Abraham said to him, they have the law and the prophets. If they don't believe those, they won't believe even if someone was to rise from the dead. That's true. Jesus said this is the last sign. The only sign, the sign that you'll know for sure I am who I said I am, I will rise from the dead. That's why 2,000 years later we still read, we still study. Because I've been to the tomb. It's empty. It's not there. The enemies, the Romans could have squashed Christianity in a second by producing a body. In a second! Nobody to produce. Over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus after the resurrection. Over 500. The Bible says by the, the word of two or three, a matter is established. 500 witnesses. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is confirmed fact. You either believe it or you don't. But isn't that what Abraham said? If you believe the law and the prophets, the word of God, if you can read the word of God and believe it, you're going to be okay. But if you don't, even if a man raised from the dead, you won't believe. That's what Jesus is saying to this generation. He's talking about that generation. Now, I want you to think back with me. Think. He said, the strong man, in order to go into the strong man's house and plunder his goods, the strong man being the devil, the, the house is the world, and, and all the people, Satan wants to take them all to hell. But God says, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to break into his house. And I'm going to make him of, of no effect. I'm going I'm to I'm remove his power and I'm going to plunder his goods. I'm going to take those souls away from him that he wants to destroy. But the generation, some of the people there, they point to Jesus who's in the midst of this work and they say, oh, you're the devil. You're the devil. And then they ask him for a sign. He says, I'll rise from the dead. That's a good sign. But then he tells them, the men of Nineveh will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Have you ever read the message that Jonah preached to the Ninevites? Jonah hated the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the Assyrians. The Assyrians were those who had taken the northern kingdom into captivity in 722 B.C. Jonah hated them. They're mean, vile people. And 
He went the other way, gets swallowed by a fish. The fish pukes him up on the shore. We all know the story, right? He's on the shore. God got him there. He can't run away from it. So this is the message he preaches. Repent in 40 days or die. Look it up. Repent in 40 days or die. And the men, starting with the king and the men of Nineveh, put on sackcloth and ashes and repented. And Jesus said, the men of Nineveh that did that, they're going to judge you. Because here I am standing in your midst and look at the miracles I'm doing and you won't see. You won't see. They saw with less and repented. So they'll, they'll be your judges. He goes on and gives another example. He says, the queen of the south will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The queen of Sheba, she came from far away just because she heard that there was a guy who had all this wisdom from God in the nation of Israel. She traveled all that way so that she could hear. Jesus says she's going to rise up in judgment and condemn this generation. The generation that saw Jesus. The generation there. The Pharisees and those guys. She's going to condemn you. Because she was willing to travel the length of the earth to find the truth. You won't even cross the street to find it. So Jesus brings this judgment upon these guys. And now listen to this. Listen. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man and, and goes, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, cleaned up, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Then Jesus said, that's how this generation is. Now, remember the story of the strong man. Jesus is coming to bind the strong man, Satan. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to disarm Satan. He's going to provide an opportunity for salvation, to plunder Satan's good, to save people on earth. But Jesus says then, looking at the Pharisees, but you're like the guy from whom the unclean spirit is taken. Satan is disarmed in your life. And you look all good, and you clean and sweep, but you never enter into a relationship. You never receive the free gift that's offered. And eventually, he comes back, but he brings seven of his buddies. He says, upon the rejection of Jesus Christ, the state is worse than it was in the beginning. They're worse off. They're worse off for two reasons. Mainly because they've seen, they've known, they've heard, and they rejected. Now, when you look at that and you consider it, It may be also that Jesus is talking, maybe there was a guy in history somewhere that was exercised. The devil was cast out of him, but he never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He never entered into a relationship with God. So he just comes back. What's to keep him out? Nothing. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What keeps the devil at bay? What keeps him out of our life? What keeps him... Away from all that stuff is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what does it. That's what accomplishes it. Here we see this unclean spirit. And I think he's relating it back to the strong man. And I think Jesus is saying to that generation, here I am in your midst to offer you salvation. And when you reject it, your situation is going to be worse than it was when I came. 70 AD, Titus Vespasian surrounded the city, the worst human uh, siege in history. Worst. People ate each other. I mean, people did a horrible, vile, abominable things to one another there in Jerusalem because they're starving to death. Because Rome choked it and they couldn't eat. Remember when Jesus was going to the cross and the women are crying for him? He said, Don't cry for me, cry for yourselves. I'm going to disarm Satan right now. I'm going to go pave the way for you to enter into a relationship with Almighty God and you're rejecting it. 
And the enemies are going to surround you on every side and they're going to kill your little ones and they're going to take your lives. Cry for yourself, don't cry for me. Their state was worse. When we receive the truth of God's word and reject it, when we continue to push it out, there comes a time where we won't hear it anymore. Don't be that way. If you feel God working on your heart, if you feel God convicting you of an area, don't just keep choking that thing down. Don't keep pushing it aside. Eventually you'll grow deaf to it. If you feel the conviction of God, it's not a bad thing. It's an opportunity to enter into or or continue or move forward with your relationship with God. That's what relationship's about, right? What happens in a husband and wife when a husband stops listening to his wife at all? It's, it's over. It's done. That's, it. That's the example that God uses of the relationship between he and us, by the way. The marriage relationship. How does it happen? Communication. Conviction. Things happen. We talk. We work I'm, when I feel the conviction of God, I need to go to God right now. Not next week, not next Sunday, not next time. Right now. Talk to Him. Open your heart to Him. Allow God to move and work in you. Don't grow deaf to the voice of God because of the, the struggles that we have in our life and, the, and wanting to, to just push it away, push away. Don't do it, don't do it. That's what they did. And they finally became deaf. Let's not be deaf. Let's not hear that. It says in verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. The other gospels tell us they were coming because they were sure he was outside his mind. The King James said that, that, that something like uh, he's confused. They, they mean he's crazy. They think he's crazy, his his mom and and his brothers and his sisters. And the one said to him, look, your mother, your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand to all those who were present. And he said, here's my mother and my brothers. Listen. Whoever does the will of the Father in heaven, he's my brother, he's my, she's my sister, or my mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. Whoever does it. Jesus is saying, listen, I, my family thinks I'm crazy right now. Don't worry, they're all going to come to faith after the resurrection. All of a sudden, his brothers won't think he's crazy anymore. But he is saying, listen, the ones who are my family are the ones who are doing the will of my father. That's why in the church we call one another brother or sister. Not because we can't remember anybody's names, but because (laughs) because we're family. We're family. Those who do the will of God. Oh, my father. Listen, as we look at this and we, we talk about this chapter that we looked at today, it's the rejection. In chapter 13, guess what starts? Parables. He, he, start, he doesn't teach plainly anymore. He teaches in parables. Because he said, they rejected me, so they won't understand. They don't understand the plain words. But my people, they'll understand the parables. The ones whose hearts are for me, the ones whose hearts are against, they'll be lost. And he begins to teach in parables. Everything's changed. The nation's rejecting. But for you and I, when we look at this and we study this chapter and we look at all these things, listen, Jesus Christ has disarmed the power of Satan so he could rescue you out of the pits of hell and bring you to heaven. He did that. That's what the cross was all about. That's what he came to do. And he's accomplished it. He set us free. Now it's up to you and I to not be like the Pharisees and just clean up on the outside, but to realize that God wants to do a work from the inside. 
And that comes from relationship with him. You got to talk to him. You got to read his love letters to you. They're right here in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Every one of them, the ones you think, oh, that's so boring. No, it's not. It's God's love letter to you. You just got to delve in. You got to, you got to tear it apart. You got to understand what is God saying to me? He gave you that because he loves you. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to come before him in, in songs. He wants you to pray. He wants you to talk. He wants a relationship. Not just today. Every day. Every morning. Every night. All the time. That's what God wants. And when we delve into that, when we give ourselves to that relationship, when we give ourselves in, in, in committed desire and we give ourselves in submission to that, then God begins to work and move in our life. And you begin to hear God's direction. And you begin to recognize His voice. And you begin to recognize His fingerprints in your life around you. All because you're being committed to that relationship. Listen, don't, don't just let the, it be on the surface. Don't just let it be, you know, I got this much of God and that's enough. I got my fire insurance. Don't be like that. Go, go deeper. Give it all. You don't have nothing to lose. The most miserable person on the planet is a Christian trying to live in both worlds at the same time. Forget about it. Forget about it. Live for him. You won't be disappointed. You won't be. And those spiritual muscles that are kind of weak right now, they're going to grow. You're going to feel the spirit of God move in your life and direct you and give you words to speak and and, and maybe give you words of knowledge. Or maybe he'll even lay upon your heart a, a word of prophecy. I mean, there's no end to what God can do in your life. But we've got to have that relationship. It's not a one-way. It's not just God to us. It's us to God, too. Both ways. He disarmed the power of Satan. He opened the door for your salvation. Don't let it stop there. Go deeper. Get more. You won't be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much for this time, this opportunity that we have to seek you, to seek your face. Lord, we ask God in this place, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would move in a mighty way, God. If there's anybody here whoever fretted or worried or, or, or got a little freaked out about some things they felt or said towards you, Lord, that they would know your forgiveness. Your forgiveness extends forever. Oh, as long as we'll ask, you'll forgive. As long as we'll confess, you'll forgive. God, I pray that you would set any of our brothers and sisters this morning that are struggling with that, set them free. Lord, I pray, God, that it would be a challenge to each and every one of us to go deeper in a relationship, to know you more, to understand. I don't want to be blind like the Pharisees. I don't want to be deaf like them. I don't want to be in a place where I can no longer see or hear. I don't know your voice. I, I don't know your direction. And those are all conditional conditions in our life that are, that are indicative of a, a lack of relationship. And the lack of relationship is not on God's part. You've done it, Lord. It's my part. It's my part. I need to come to you. I need to read the love letters you've given me. I need to call upon your name in prayer. I need to enter into your throne of grace. I need to come before you in praises. God, I pray, Lord, each and every one of us, if we're struggling in that area, your mercies are new every day. God, we start now. Today's a new day. Give us a fresh start. Move us into that place of relationship, Lord God, that we hear and recognize your voice. You said, my sheep know my voice. Because your sheep hear your voice all the time. Through word. Through prayer. Through worship. God, I pray that you would provide those opportunities. And God, that you would unite us as a body together. And Father, that you would blow the winds of revival through us, God. Blow out the dust. Revive us again, Lord God, that we can go forward. That we are not just religious. I don't ever want to be that. I want to be a person who has a relationship with the true and living God. That I know you. 
and you know my name. God, I pray that you would just, by your spirit, move among us this morning. God, just do your perfect work in us and through us as we give you all the praise for what you've done in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.